0: are made possible by donations from people like you.
2: If our lives are very stressed and harried, and we're impinged on and we feel like we're always a day late and a dollar short and never catching up with everything that's expected of us, to be able to come and sit, and settle down, and be still, and be quiet, and settle into that silence. That's a a very good and useful kind of uh, practice. But Joko wouldn't call that Zen. Uh, She would say more that um, Zen is really lurking in all the moments uh, of the sitting that uh, we don't like and we're trying to get away from. That the uh, physical pain, the mental restlessness, the tension in our body. We're not trying to make those things go away, she would say. We're trying to experience the absolute in the middle of those experiences. That you want to be able to say, this is it while your knee hurts, while your mind is wandering, while you're in grief. All all these states that we normally would come to practice to get away from, she would say, no, your practice is right there in the middle of those things. The precepts, one could say, are the next step of how we get practice out of our heads. Uh, The precepts basically say... The precepts you could say are basically about non-separation. And the, the first order of separation we're dealing with is inside and outside. So the precepts are basically saying the Zen is not something that's taking place inside. Right? It's not the cultivation of an inner state. Uh, enlightenment isn't a kind of inner buzz or inner clarity that you get and then hold once and for all. In a way, you could say she had an almost uh, behavioralist kind of picture of practice. It's well, what are you what are you going to do with that? How uh, how are you behaving differently as a result of that practice? How are you seeing yourself and others? Now she she was trained by a Japanese teacher in a mode that included. Lots of formal rituals. Everybody shaved their head, was wearing robes, studied koans in a formal Japanese manner. And she really wanted to do away with with all of that because, well, for a lot of reasons. But in part, she didn't want people to use practice to simply create a new kind of identity for themselves. Uh, Didn't want people walking saying, well, I'm, it's black robes, and I'm somehow special and different from everybody else, right? For her, that was just a, another form of separation, and the practice was supposed to be about ending separation. But once in a while, somebody wouldn't quite get the message, and they would come to her, and they, they would ask her to ordain them as a monk. And she would uh, shake her head, and she would uh, say, "If you want to be a monk, just act like one. Right? Okay? If you think um, there's something to being a monk other than looking different, show me. Let's see how that's reflected in how you're living." And part of her idea of teacher training uh, was she told me, I'm not going to give you any ceremony or title or make any announcement that you're a Dharma successor. Uh, If you think you have something to teach, go start teaching. Let's see if anybody listens. (laughs) (laughs) Right? If you can do it for at least three years and you get a group around you and people start acting like they're students and they start treating you like they feel you've got something to teach, well, if you do that for a few years, I'll, then I'll acknowledge it, that, that you're a teacher. So it was go out there without uh, any title, any robes, but just do it, see see what how people respond and
3: see if anybody salutes okay.
2: <laughs> so in our in our sangha one of the things we we do in um as a sort of a preliminary of uh, before there's something like studying the precepts we say that jukai is a matter of making your practice oriented to service and to the sangha rather than to your personal inner experience so that means you're not just showing up for an experience where you're the passive recipient of somebody else's effort in organization, right? Uh, To study the precepts means, tell me which days you're gonna volunteer to be the first one in the Zendo and open up the doors and get everything set up and be prepared to greet newcomers and give beginners instruction and then learn how to ring the bells and do the liturgy And then when everybody leaves, be the last one to leave to clean up and put everything away, right? Uh, Be the person whose practice is manifesting in service to the the sangha. And as part of that, we also try to get people to use that time to think about their own personal relationship to this uh, tradition. That's part of this question of what is your commitment to the Sangha and the Dharma? What's your commitment to a lineage, to a tradition? Joko uh, tended to do away with most of the chants that uh, uh, she had uh, trained in that were in Japanese and to put everything in English. Uh, But I brought back doing things like the Heart Sutra in the Sino-Japanese because I want people to have some connection to their their traditional roots. I don't want people to get the idea Zen was invented in Southern California and everything about it is simply American. We're participating in a very long tradition. And each generation has to decide... What of this is valuable to me here and now? Some of it's going to be discarded. Some is going to be preserved. Some is going to get rewritten. And so one of the things that we do in the precepts training is to read through and compare many different translations or versions of the precepts. And I think Andrew has uh, uh, done that with you and shown you some of the different versions that we have uh, used. Uh, And one of the basic uh, shifts in emphasis has been away from thinking of uh, precepts in terms of uh, vows and uh, instead. Uh, looking at the precepts in terms of bearing witness or acknowledging, acknowledgement. Uh, Andrew, did you distribute the uh, precepts of bearing witness to the group or should I read them now and talk about them?
4: It wouldn't do any harm to read them if you like. I uh, I did send copies of the bearing witness precepts and I also sent a copy of the Traditional uh, precepts this morning, but probably not many people would have had chance to read them. So,
2: all right, let me um, let me read the two the, the two versions. They're short, but we can get a flavor of uh, the difference. Uh, first, the ten grave precepts in the version. Uh, this I got off the website of the San Francisco Zen Center. And these are all in the forms of vows, uh, and vows are uh, essentially like the uh, the rules that the monks are vowing to undertake. These are going to be the rules of of living together. Uh, so the ten grave precepts, I vow not to kill. I vow not to take what is not given. I vow not to misuse sexuality. I vow to refrain from false speech. I vow to refrain from intoxicants. I vow not to slander. I vow not to praise self at the expense of others. I vow not to be avaricious. I vow not to harbor ill will. I vow not to disparage the three treasures. Now I'm going to read uh, Precepts of Bearing Witness, uh, which I adapted from a a version uh, originally put forward by Bernie Glassman and the Zen Peacemakers. But at some point I uh, modify that for our Sangha. I bear witness to the reality of killing and of violence in myself and in the world. I bear witness to the reality of inequality and of greed in myself and in the world. I bear witness to the power of sexuality and its potential for both love and for harm in myself and in the world. I bear witness to the lack of honesty in myself and in the world. I bear witness to the reality of delusion and the desire to evade the painful truths of life in myself and in the world. I bear witness to the reality of blame and the avoidance of responsibility in myself and in the world. I bear witness to the aggrandizement of the self and the denigration of others by myself and in the world. I bear witness to the reality of possessiveness and my withholding of love and resources. I bear witness to the reality of my own ill will and the pain of divisiveness in the world. I bear witness to my own lack of faith in the power of the Three Treasures to relieve the suffering of all beings. Now in that version, I've tried to do something that I think is more in keeping with Joko's style of practice, which is to begin with an awareness in oneself of separation and resistance the traditional vows in a way uh, try to create an, uh, an ideal or an aspiration and for Joko I think there was a way in which uh, she would see that as trying to create a kind of idealized self that one would live up to. And that's useful in a certain way, but I think that from a kind of psychological perspective, it's more useful to always start with the ways in which you're not doing those things, right? To try to acknowledge my greed, my withholding, my judgments, right? My own violence towards others in, in, in thoughts and in judgment and so forth. That there we really begin acknowledging the, the, the actual feelings that create separation in our lives. Now to study the precepts for me is to try to really go into detail individually with people. Uh, uh, one-on-one or in groups, of how they work through these, these precepts, how they see them functioning in their life. Uh, and we try to make that period of study and commitment formalized by doing service in the Zendo, Classes with a precepts leader culminating uh, in, a, in a ceremony, uh, in a weekend long session, uh, in which the, the student has to do a couple uh, particular things. One, uh, instead of being part of the session with everyone else uh, for one day of the session, They stay in their room and sit the schedule completely alone. And there we feel like this symbolizes taking responsibility for maintaining the practice on your own, right? And secondly, we uh, ask everybody to give a talk in front of the whole group. Uh, Not exactly a Dharma talk, but a talk about their own personal experience. Of coming to the practice and working with one of the precepts, and uh, some people take to that. Other people, for other people, of course, public speaking is a fate almost worse than death. So, but it's good to put people uh, into situations that they would otherwise uh, find difficult to avoid, and in part, these talks are a way that. Sangha members really get uh, to know each other and to know each other uh, with some intimacy. So they're not just presenting uh, an idealized face to one another uh, in the Zendo, being uh, looking strong and calm and silent, right? It's trying to let people know what's going on inside and going on uh, outside in real life as well. And at the end of that ceremony, uh, a student is presented with uh, one of these, a rathasu, which is a miniature symbolic robe. And uh, we try not to uh, make that a a matter of hierarchy, that, oh, these are special or senior students. Uh, But it's more like... uh, a name tag so when somebody new comes into the zendo that's the person they can ask for help right uh basically a rakasu should be like a little name tag saying hi my name is barry how can i help you right that's what we would uh, like it to uh, convey I think maybe I'll stop there and leave time for some discussion or questions. Uh, I tend not to go on as long as Andrew in these talks. He has a lot more to say than I do. (laughs) But uh, I hope this at least uh, gives you a little bit of uh, what you're looking for in terms of this uh, topic. But if there are things I'm not touching on or not clear about, please uh, ask some questions and we'll uh, try to go into it all a little more deeply in a way that's useful to you. Thank you.
4: But, uh, thank you. Thank you very very Barry. Barry. Uh, just one question to yourself and everybody else. Um, do you want me to keep the recording? By the way, I almost forgot to record it, but I remembered after about five minutes. Um, <laughs> do you want me to keep the recording going or should I stop the recording now?
2: That's more a matter for your sangha. I don't mind being recorded, but it's whether other people want to... Does anybody
4: have an objection to this being the question and answer session being recorded? No? Uh, Okay, then we'll record it. So um, if you have a question or uh, something you'd like to observe or comment on... um, I'll, I'll try and see if you could just kind of like raise your hand like that. And, um, and I'll, uh, I'll facilitate the process. So who would like to kick it off? So was that you, Michael? No. So just 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 wave a hand. Okay, uh, Peter.
3: Oh, thanks. Thanks, uh, everyone. Thanks, Barry. That was very, um, very uh, interesting talk um, and uh, explanation of your practice in uh, New York and uh, in Joko's tradition, who I was very fortunate to meet on a number of great occasions here in Australia and in San Diego. And I I bow to Joko. She was a wonderful woman, a wonderful person and a wonderful teacher of us all. And um, I have a friend now in uh, Queensland who's wanting to rewrite, he's just ordained as a priest with John Ishmael Ford. And uh-huh. he's, already, he's already a Zen teacher, but he wanted to re-go, go through the precepts and put them, uh, rewrite them in his own, for his own Sangha. And I found myself saying to him, look, from my point of view, um, There's two main aspects for me. One is just the basic underlying thing, like in medicine or psychology or homeopathy, or is the first principle, do no harm, (laughs) underlies everything. And the other one I just feel more lately is anything that blocks our practice tends to be something that we need to avoid, that blocks our main thing in life for most of us or a lot of us here is our practice uh, or becoming that way and anything that blocks that energy for practice um, you know whether it's watching the porn movie late at night that stops us doing our practice or whatever it is or taking some heavy alcohol or that's all going to block our energy for practice and I I just said to my friend Barry his, his name's also Barry Barry Farron I said look to me, those two things are, are, are important for me because I said a lot of a lot of ethical um, practices about conditioning. If I'm in Southern Philippines, I'm a Muslim man. I'm allowed to have nine wives, and the condition is I I have the money and the uh, time and energy to look after those nine wives and those all those children, and that's a that's the conditioning of that. Community, and uh, I mean in New York, that might be in another culture, that might be considered totally uh, <laughs> uh, greedy, licentious, mm-hmm. uh, you know, lecherous, or whatever other form uh, uh, you know opinion may have. So I just tried to simplify it, throwing into those two main underlying things, and I I think he, I hope he was grateful for my my <laughs> feedback, but. Mm-hmm. Uh, just a comment on on, on, on the discussion, and I, I really appreciated what you said, and I learned I learned a lot from your, your what you said. Thanks. Well,
2: do no harm is of course a good place to always start as with a precept. I think the question of uh, uh, things that are blocking practice, uh, Joko, I would say would look at that and say. The point is not so much to um, try to make yourself change bad behaviors, but to really be honest about what's motivating that behavior. What is it that you're avoiding? Uh, What is the feeling that you're trying to eliminate with the drinking? What is it about sitting that you don't want to face that you decide to watch a movie instead, right? To see if you could just stop, and for just even a a few seconds honestly feel the thing you're trying to avoid and then if you have to avoid it go avoid it but just your practice is being honest about what what's being avoided try to feel that a little bit before you do the habitual uh, thing right and i think she felt that if you get in that habit you'll see You know hundreds of opportunities a day for these little micro avoidances to just stop feel that the thing you don't really want to do what why not what's the what's the issue there right what's the potential injury embarrassment anxiety right that's the that's the practice.
4: Thank you. Barry, thank you. Peter, who would like to go next? Is that Louise? Uh, uh, Okay, Louise and then Nita. Do you need to unmute yourself, Louise?
0: Am I unmuted now?
4: Yeah, you're fine now. I can hear you.
0: So I just wanted to thank you, Barry. I found that was an amazing talk. It was very helpful and I, I really liked the difference between the precepts as vows and the precepts as the witness. For me, that, that was a very important distinction. To be the witness is it's not judging yourself and to take a vow is very important because it sets up the intention, which I think is really um helpful too but but there's that tendency to judge oneself when you break the vows which as you say when you get into the the subtleties and the nuances the vows get broken so many times that it's Mm. very difficult to to truly love yourself and accept yourself whereas Mm. with with the witnessing it seems to be a very practical way of getting over that problem and i thought that was a very useful approach So thank you.
2: Thank you. I'm glad to hear that. Okay,
4: Uh, Nita?
5: Uh, Hi. Thank you, Barry. Uh, That was a very inspirational talk. I like how you're very calm in your pace of delivery. It's refreshing. (laughs) Um, So I had a question. I'm very new to Zen. Uh, This this morning was the first time I even read the precepts. But to me, it kind of seems quite common sense in a way about how to live and how best to live, I guess. And I think the question I have is related to choices. So I find in my life, I struggle to make decisions sometimes. And I find no matter how much mindfulness and awareness that I have, it still doesn't seem to help me decide. So I was just wondering if
2: you had any advice. Well, in general, I would say that um, how we handle ourselves after the decision may end up being a lot more important than what decision we make. Uh, So often uh, we're torn thinking that there's going to be a right decision a wrong decision Uh, and there are ways in which it's um, obviously true that some outcomes are going to be better than others but really I think the way we want to practice is to say I'm going to simply face the consequences of this decision, whatever they are, and sort of trust myself to handle that outcome, you know, as best I can and in a resilient way. And then I'll make another decision and I'll handle whatever comes of that as best I can. And you. A, you switch your emphasis and trust away from deciding right or wrong to trying to handle the situation that arises as best you can, regardless of the outcome. So if I didn't make the best decision and there are all these other consequences, okay, well, how do I deal with those? Right? Let, I'll clean it up. I'll, I'll deal with it, right? So... I think there's um, a way in which the emphasis can switch away from choice and into this kind of um, trust in the resiliency of your own character, right? Whatever happens, right? Thank you. That's really
1: wise advice.
4: Thank you, Nita, that's a great question. Um, Thank you, Barry. So just raise your hand if you wanna go next. Uh, Anne, and then Alan. Anne, you just need to unmute yourself. Right. That, that
5: better? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Right. Yeah. Thank. Thank you for the talk, Barry. Um, I just wanted to say that I find the um, concept of making a vow quite difficult uh, because I know that I will be breaking that vow, so it it just seems like a lie right from the start. Um, so I'm not comfortable with that. Um, whereas the yeah the precepts are. are bearing witness, um, it feels like, well, you're starting with where you're at now and so that seems as though it's much more in touch with reality and that's something that I can face up to more easily with a, yeah, the the vows, the idea of making a vow is, is really tough and scares me away and I don't want to look at it and that and, I mean, the bearing witness isn't always easy either um but it's just allows me to to sit with the discomfort of that reality more so
2: yes i think that's the idea i agree with that that it's uh, you're not trying to make a vow that you're endlessly breaking and remaking and trying to do better next time and all of being mm-hmm. on that treadmill you're just mm-hmm. over and over again trying to be honest about where you actually are
0: yes yes mm-hmm.
2: And I think when you're honest about that and it, and allow yourself to see something like being greedy and you really own that, to to really own it all, already, something's going to happen in you that's going to uh, transform that or modify it. It's not necessarily uh, something you have to decide to do. It's something, in a way, it just leaves a bad taste in your mouth when you really acknowledge it. And you... You, you tend not to want to do that this, in the same way when you're really honest about what you're doing and how it feels.
5: Mm. Slowly, slowly.
2: Slowly, slowly.
4: <laughs> Thank you, Anne and Barry. Uh, Alan, you're next. Just need to unmute yourself. That's it. Thank you, Barry.
1: Thank you. My name is Alan. Um, I'm also new to this form of Zen. Um, I've been interested for a long time in meditation. I spent about 31 years working as a therapist, music therapist with clients. My question relates to partly the precepts that I read, but also my own practice. Um, I noticed maybe about five years that when I worked with my clients, I tend to focus on what I would call an alleviation of suffering. But I also noticed a lot of colleagues would work, the focus will be more on an enhancement of well being. It's just a simple differentiation in the focus. And reading the precepts, one of them, for example, one that relates to love, that you bear witness to the power of sexuality and its potential for love and harm. Would you would you be able to comment um, or give me some advice on what I said in relation to alleviation of suffering versus enhancement of well-being and also that polarity that often is found in good versus bad, acknowledgement of good and bad and the potential for growth in both? Thank you.
2: Well, it, it's a big question, and I think in terms of uh, therapy, there there is always a kind of dialectic where you move back and forth between uh, a kind of acknowledgement and exploration of trauma and the origins of suffering, and also having that function in some way in tandem with being able to support Emergent signs of uh, health and growth and expansiveness, right? I think you you want to be able to uh, do both of those in some kind of appropriate uh, tandem, and that's going to vary a lot in very you know particular circumstances. Uh, in the particular precept you mentioned, uh, I put in acknowledging the power of love because the original uh, version of the precepts basically uh, was a condemnation of sexuality uh, in its entirety, that um, uh, monks, you know, originally were taking vows of chastity, saw sexuality as the root of uh, attachment and desire and uh, simply a source of suffering and there was no acknowledgement of uh, a need for love or attachment and so I wanted to get that balance in there. I think it's a chronic problem in a lot of Buddhist texts that um, there's a lot of talk about compassion uh, which you're supposed to be giving to others. But there's very little talk about needing to be on the receiving end of compassion. And I think that contemporary Western Buddhism is uh, uh, much more involved in seeing uh, the value and necessity of relationship Uh, when we're not home leavers right? We're not severing ties to family in order to become homeless mendicant monks and ascetics, right? Um, We want to be able to have families and loved ones and all these kinds of ties that classically are the source of suffering. And I've said uh, elsewhere that um, in our context, suffering is the price we willingly pay for love. You know, we we understand that attachment brings with it vulnerability and the potential for hurt and loss. And we accept that, we accept that as a whole package. We're not trying to enter into a practice that's going to free us from all attachment so that we never suffer uh, loss again. That's not what we're doing, right? It's much more that we are willing to face the reality of both interdependency and impermanence, that those two things go together and they're inescapable. And We're not trying to create a special uh, situation or life that is going to free us from, from either of those things. Uh, we're not gonna become autonomous and we're not gonna get eternal life. We're going to be interdependent and mortal, and we're going to suffer the joys of that, but we're not going to suffer the endless attempt to escape from the inescapable, or to endless attempt to try to control the uncontrollable. We're going to uh, take life as that whole package.
4: Okay. Thank you, Alan, great question, and uh... Great answer. Thank you, Barry. So many of you have not met Barry before. So this is, um, I don't know how long we can hold him here with us. It's getting late on a Saturday evening in New York, um, probably approaching um, eight o'clock now. It's almost yeah. time for Barry's bedtime. No, he's no easy. <laughs> yep. It's, it's going would, to be my dinner time. It's <laughs> going to be your dinner time. You haven't had dinner yet. No, yeah. <laughs> okay. So, come on. You've, this is a wonderful opportunity. If you haven't met Barry before and you've got one of those questions you've always wanted to ask, Jed, go for it.
6: Thank you very much, uh, Andrew, for this opportunity and Barry as well. And and thanks for the pressure, Andrew, to, to put myself out there and, uh, and say something. Um, yeah, really appreciate you being here, Barry. Um, I... Funnily enough, I came across Andrew through your podcast when you mentioned uh, Andrew's name, and I heard Andrew, an Australian, and I thought, oh, I better Google this guy, um, given that he's studied with you. Um, one thing that that, uh, that I've been thinking about is this, you know, this is it, like this acceptance of, of suffering and, and pain, um, but also the, the the follow-up to that question. I mean, in a sense that say, for example, loneliness, right? Like um, there's the recognition of it and the acceptance of it and the feeling of the pain of it. But it's also like a signal to say that my social needs aren't being met. And so um, there's a second part, which is, okay, what am I going to do about it? And, um, and I guess that's it. You know, your comment about Joko partly being a behaviorist, you know, if you're going to be a monk, act like one. So I I think that that link I'm kind of starting to make here is that it doesn't end at at just this is it, but there's like this follow-up.
2: That's right. You see, I think that um, without the follow-up, it's not acceptance, it's resignation, right it's just that this is it and there's nothing to do about it i've got to uh just do in this feeling forever right it, but uh really uh, um resignation uh basically feels like an end point or a dead end acceptance ought to feel like a beginning this is where i'm starting from but now I'm, i i I still have agency. I still have responsiveness, right? I'm, I'm I'm going to do something, right? So it's it's very important to uh, distinguish resignation from acceptance. And I think um, too often people have practiced within Buddhism as if um, they just have to resign themselves to things, right? And uh, that then your practice just leads you into depression, and that. Uh, that serves nobody. Thank
4: you, Jib. That was a great question and uh, a gem of an answer. A distinction between yeah. acceptance and resignation. Really like that. Mm-hmm. Okay, Joe, go.
2: Um,
0: just um, okay. That that was that was really enlightening to me. The the difference between resignation and acceptance. So. When I'm practicing, say just before when we were um, in Zazen, I was um, there was dogs wandering around, the neighbour was starting to mow, and um, I was annoyed with something that was going on inside. So, so I'm bearing <coughs> witness to it. The next step is, I guess, learning to accept the things I can't change. What comes after that? Like that's that to me is what um, Jed was saying that. You know, this is this is what's present. So the next step is instead of resignation, just accepting and being with it. Like, how do I how do I bring that into meditation? I guess is what I'm trying to ask.
2: Well, I think that uh, in your meditation, you in that period, you just watch your desire to avoid things or control things. I mean, so much of what happens. What our minds are doing all the time are, are, are little maneuvers of avoidance and control, avoidance and control. Uh, and so for the period in which we're sitting, uh, we, we just want to be able to watch that, that tendency and see if we can leave everything alone for this period of time, right? What's it like to just leave it and not fix it, right? Let me just feel what that is. Right. Uh, nobody's saying feel something that's torturing you or that, that's, you know, uh, the roof is falling in or the house is on fire and you should just sit there anyway, but in, in ordinary sittings where you're feeling a little bit uncomfortable or distracted or annoyed from something on the outside, just let yourself have that as a particular experience for a half hour, or whatever it is, right? Uh, obviously it makes sense to uh, the extent you can try to find a quiet place to sit, but you can't always. And in the city where we have our Zendo, there's always traffic noise in the background. And um, where Joko was in San Diego, there was street noise. And people used to say, shouldn't we go up into the country uh, where we can have perfect silence in a country retreat. And she said, no, it's better practice in the city. Learn to deal with, with all of that, right? Because in a certain way, what you're trying to do is um, just experience your own thought the way you experience the, the, the noise from the street. It's just background noise. You don't have to make it go away. You don't have to control it. You can just let it alone and let it be there within limits, obviously, but it's mostly that practice of leave it alone for once. Don't don't fix it. Just notice your reaction to it. Thank you.
4: Okay, so I'm I'm aware that's been a very long day for Barry because he was at the would have been at the Zendo this morning too, probably giving a Dharma talk this morning. And uh, so let's just have one last question. Okay. Uh, Reese.
2: Hi Barry,
7: Uh, thank you for your talk. I guess uh, my question's about uh, uh, I really like the idea of taking the the precepts more as a a sense of of witnessing um, as opposed to kind of cutting something off um, and, and, you know, not doing something. Um, But I wonder about a kind of balance point between witnessing and then sometimes making decisions that that you are going to cut something off. I'm thinking especially in my own experience where things have a kind of Um, certain actions in my life might have a kind of an addictive quality to them or or, or a kind of compulsive quality. And at times it seemed skillful for me to say, at at a certain point, say, okay, I'm not going to do this thing anymore. I I understand that I get, I can witness this. I understand that I can get drawn into doing this thing um, or or a desire to do this thing. And I am at a certain point just going to say, no, I'm not going to do that anymore. Um so I wonder if you can talk about that, that relationship between witnessing and then and then sometimes taking the precept as a as an admonition or a, or a, a kind of hard spot on a
3: behavior
2: Yes, I think I think those things have to work in tandem. I think traditionally our Zen practice involves a lot of discipline uh, it involves a lot of showing up uh, and in a certain way uh. You could say we're make, You know, I'm making a vow to be at the zendo every day at a certain time, right? And no matter what's going on, I show up and do that, right? It's uh, uh, and there's a a development of discipline or habit or character that is able to make that kind of commitment. I think that's part of uh, our training. Uh, people used to ask me. Uh, if I was teaching my son Zen when he was growing up and uh, I said uh, I never ever mentioned Zen to him but I taught him to make his bed every morning and that that was the the practice and, and I told him the the idea is not that you end up with a made bed but that you become the kind of person who makes his bed every morning Right, that you develop that discipline and that habit, and you know that you can do that. Right, that's that's the practice, and in that sense, it's a practice of non avoidance because however you feel, you just do that, right? You just show up to that that thing you've committed to.